Welcome back to The Julie Norman Show, a podcast on politics, ethics, and current affairs. In light of the ongoing protests and demonstrations for police reform and racial equality, I'm doing another special episode this week featuring Dr. Esmarie Miller. Um, Esmarie is a lecturer in criminology at London South Bank University. And she's been looking at issues of race, justice, and policing for over 15 years, really with a focus on young people. She looks at institutional policies around urban youth gangs, uh, historical narratives on youth justice reform, policing surveillance in schools, the role of race and gender and punishment, and a lot of other really important issues as well. She has a forthcoming book on the role of race in youth justice, And she focuses specifically on the UK and Canada. And I thought that was really interesting. And I wanted to speak with her partly about how and why movements like Black Lives Matter extend beyond the US borders and are present in other places as well. I also wanted to hear from Esmeri about how she and other researchers in her field have really been working for years to change the narrative on racialized youth through their research. You know, as Esmeri says, the historical discourse around young people of color was long centered around an assumed deviance or reluctance. And she says, you know, that narrative has really carried through to today. And as she puts it, you know, the present is still really tethered to the past. But maybe by engaging with that history and understanding it, we might be able to challenge and change that narrative. So when Esmeri first started this work, she was told by her supervisors that her research was sound, but perhaps a little too radical. Now that the idea of systemic racism has become more mainstream, I wanted to hear from Esmeri on how and why she thinks our social understandings and norms shift and how she sees this present moment. Our conversation gets slightly academic at times, but there's a lot of great stuff here, and I hope you learn as much as I did. So now here is my conversation with Dr. Esmarie Miller. All right, so Esmarie Miller, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so Esmarie, you work on so many fascinating things that are so relevant right now. Um, race, youth, gender, class, justice, surveillance. How do you describe your work? Every time I describe my work, um, something else seeps into it. So um, what I say depends on the day. The thing that brings it together, um, that these, these diverse themes together, is the whole notion of um, youth. Um, this is my area of interest, young people. Uh, most especially racialized young people, and um, including the intersection between gender, race, and class, um, and how they're dealt with within the justice system, um, and how their lives are predominantly um, controlled by notions of crime and punishment. So normally, no, normally you know, when we talk about this, um, my umbrella is criminology. Um, this is a framework within which I work. Um, and normally when we talk about these things, we talk about them as... Um, concerns that deal with criminal justice and crime and punishment. And my approach to this is that this is, very, this is a very narrow scope, it's a very narrow lens and distorts the reality of the young people. And it creates a sort of, um, so on the one hand, it, it creates a distortion, but on the other hand, there's a lot of things that are invisible that, that are left out of the conversation. And so my approach to this, that like 
I, I said earlier that I have uh, different conversations that, that bring out diverse interests. So the, the thing that brings these things together is my feeling and my thesis that, you know, this is not a matter of crime and punishment. Crime and punishment is the very end of it, that, that in general, what's happening with these young people um, has to do with their broader exclusion from the benefits of modern rights. So we're dealing with all institutions, not just criminal justice. Criminal justice, in fact, is what comes at the end. Can can you give me an example of like the kind of situation that you would be looking at and the kind of conversations you would have that provide so many different kinds of insights to that? Like what kind of youth experience or trajectory are you focusing on when you're doing this kind of work? At the moment, as I as we discussed before, I'm I'm working on, on multiple projects. So um the most developed project that I'm working on is um, is a manuscript for Routledge, and it's it's due out um, in 2021. Um, and the underlying I take as my point of departure the sort of conversations that are being had about young people, um, especially in Britain, sorry, in the in England and Wales, um, and uh, black young people. And one of the the the, the sort of hot public narratives is the, the, the thing called their disproportionate representation or incarceration. And uh, so th- like the book takes that as its point of departure. But as I said before, whilst I take that as my point of departure, it's a, it's a sort of um, disruption of the, my aim is, is, is to disrupt that narrative or uh, to expand the way we talk about this notion of incarceration as though it, because this notion itself defines our recognition of the young people as deviant or inevitably deviant, or instead of um, vulnerable, we define them as risky, and then the practice that follows um, treats them as risky. And this sets in, in motion a very uh, devastating process of recognition that ends with their disproportionate representation um, behind bars. So my, this, is, this is where I've expanded my conversation about this notion of um, why, the, the question of why it is that so many black young people are represented in custody. You, you, you said so much that I definitely want to pick up on and come back to. I just wanted to ask you first, though, how did you first decide to pursue research on this topic? Why was this important to you to focus on this and try and provide different a different conversation around the incarceration of young people and young people of color in particular? Well, um, once upon a time, I thought these things were history. Um, and I think I, I might have existed in a bubble. I traveled around a lot growing up, so I, I managed to, um, to overlook a lot of the things that were happening in society. And in fact, I thought that a lot of these things had been addressed in the research. So just a little, little bit about my educational background. I did my BA, my bachelor's degree in history, and then I pursued a, a, um, graduate studies in politics and political theory. Um, and I had an interest in, um, I developed an interest in youth justice during my master's because there were, I, I, at the time I lived in Canada, um, in the mid to late 1990s, there were conversations about this issue of the gang, which I'd only ever associated with uh, an American narrative um, on, on black youth. But all of a sudden I started recognizing more and more of these narratives in the media. And, um, and it became quite an interesting, um, a, um, a topic of interest for me because there are links being made to Jamaica, and this is where I was born. And I thought, this is weird. Uh, I, 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 I hadn't realized the extent to which the, um, the links between blackness and deviance were modern, uh, or, or, or the, the contemporaneous 
of these links between blackness and deviance. And as it transpires, it was a sort of evolved version of the sort of marginalization of racialized peoples. So my interest in history led me to a, a deeper, um, well, it, it led me to question more the sort of um, sup- what I thought were superficial narratives that were linking um, crime and immigration. And I thought this is, this is definitely worth investigating because in my experience, this, these things are framed to, um, to sort of fulfill a certain agenda. And I, I, I felt very uncomfortable. And so I, I thought as a researcher, this is part of a responsibility of mine uh, as a racialized person to, um, to dig deeper and to understand why these things were all of a sudden becoming so, so relevant um, to the, the, the contemporary political narrative about crime and justice. Um, and so from there, I developed a deeper interest in young people and it evolved into a PhD thesis and um, now um, a teaching career at the university and more research, which I think there's, there's, there's a great deal of room for. And can I ask you then, how has been, how has your experience been in researching this topic? I remember when we spoke one other time, you had mentioned that when you were first pursuing this area, one of your professors said your work was too quote-unquote radical and I was wondering if you could speak more to that and um and if that's changed over time and particularly at this moment that we're in yeah it's so interesting that um when I started to do when I started to pursue um research in this I um I would I I I, I said to you earlier I was I was often met with silence um, so I would talk about, I would be asked, you know, what's your research? What's your interest? And I would, I would, I would, you know, I would talk about the things that I understood in the same way that we're talking here. And um, there was, there was usually a sort of polite silence and very rarely was there a follow-up. And um, one of the rare occasions, I, I suppose because of the context of our conversation, I was in a supervision and my, this was during my master's and, um, and um, my professor said, you know, your, your ideas aren't wrong, but they're so they're so strong, they're very, very radical. And I thought, I'm radical, I'm so tame. And I didn't, I thought that, that the things that I was saying were so obvious. So my master's thesis had to do with the whole notion of inclusivity of, um, you know, the, the sort of, I, I, I remember the tagline, something along the lines of, if we don't um, expand our thinking to racialize youth, then the aims of justice are not being met. And, um, and, and, and that was part of what was described as radical. And um, interestingly enough, um, even f- moving forward, moving past 2005, 2006, all the way to the, the PhD thesis, as I, as I pursued research and had conversations with people, I would be told that my topic was very sexy, but it wasn't, you know, like it, it was just like trendy or topical. And I, I mentioned earlier to you that all of a sudden, the research that I'm doing, the conversation and narrative that I, that I, I pursued this notion that this is not just about cr- criminal justice or criminal punishment has become so, so, so relevant. So, um, you know, it's, it's so most of everyone is out in the street protesting today and has been for the past 14 days. And, um, and I thought I was asking earlier, you know, so what goes, what goes into that? Like what causes uh, such a shift in thinking at the, the, the sort of, um, um, recognition by people or, or acceptance by people to like, like to, to all of a sudden clutch, hang on or lash onto this narrative and pursue 
activism and being the street protesting what 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 inspires that that that's very interesting to me and and how would you answer that because i think you just said what you know some people would would probably uh, agree with too in the sense that when you probably first started this work say in 2005-2006 you know 15 years later in 2020 you know, what i would say is a very different conversation at least emerging around the themes that you look at so what what happened during that time and do you think this is actually a normative shift that we're seeing or or something else i think there have always been people fighting the fight They've always been academics um, attempting attempting to get uh, this kind of research out there. There have been activism at the community level with um, both through academic um, channels, but also with interested parties within these communities who are struggling and working very hard to, um, like I suppose, to hold up battle lines. Right. So this is never this isn't new. What we're seeing with the Black Lives Matters movement um, and with the protests in the streets is a recognition of the importance of of, um, of dealing with these issues today. And of, of course, it's it's more complicated than that. But I'll just say what I what I, I I'll finish what I started off by saying that it's very very important that we don't start uh, branding this this this. Uh, this public recognition as something new. The public rec recognition itself has its own, requires its own conversation, but it is fed or inspired by a very long history of a fight and a struggle or whatever you want to brand it um, for racial justice. So I'm actually looking, um, sitting here and I'm looking at a book by a Canadian activist called Robin Maynard and um, Robin wrote, published her book in 2018 and it's called Police and Black Lives, State Violence in Canada from Slavery to the Present. And she touches on, on similar themes, you know, she touches on all the sort of institutional um, misrecognition that, that, that black families, black youth, black fathers, black mothers have, 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 um, have been met with or have had to negotiate through. So what we're seeing today is a normative shift towards uh, public support you know, where we see people from all over the world, which actually has really amazed me, from all over the world um, joining in, um, showing support. These movements are not new, and it's very, very important to recognize that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think the point that you just made, too, is that the movements are extending, obviously, beyond the U.S. context, where I think a lot of the writing, as well as a lot of the activism has been assumed to be located in the past, but you know, we've seen protests in London, protests in Europe, protests in Australia, uh, across Canada. And I know in your work, you focus specifically on uh, England and Wales and the UK and Canada um, specifically. So I'm really curious into how you see the importance of this international dimension and why why it's important that some of these conversations extend beyond just the U.S. context. Yeah, um, there's there has been a sustained uh, narrative that the that the U.S. has a race problem. So the U.S. is recognized for this, um, and it's, it's especially an anti-black um, problem. Um, and it's a it's a narrative that has sustained itself for a long time, even amongst the most intellectual people, and. Um, and th this is where my research comes in because I think that what we're dealing with is something that's that's international, that it starts off at the top and it filters down to local politics, and th that that there's no ideal space for racialized people. 
So um, my research brings a lot of history into this, and this is part of my expanded vocabulary for thinking about the, these kinds of conversations about youth in particular, but we can extrapolate to deal with adults as well, um, whether you're a working professional or someone who has who has a criminal record and has an, an or or is currently behind bars. So um, to answer the actual um, point of, about the global dimension of this, the the point here is that we have a, we we have sustained a narrative, or a narrative has been sustained that this is an American problem. But my work shows me otherwise um, that this is quite historic but it's also quite global. So my, my, my research um, into, which includes the context specifically of England, I said England and Wales, but I'm speaking specifically of England and Canada, um, shows me a very historic dimension that has been uh, erased. Um, because the, I, my, my, um, my theory of this is that the gatekeeping process has allowed that history to fall into some sort of obscurity. So, very little has been published in the mainstream about this. And so there, there's a focus on, say, the 1970s, 1980s onwards, but there's no real look backwards to see the continuity of exclusion that has fed into the, like, the contemporary issues with um, law enforcement in particular, because this is what we see especially. But this is a, a cross-institutional thing. This is a cross-institutional exclusion that, that, that includes law enforcement but it's also inclusive of other institutions as well. So we see in the UK notions of a, a, a black, Asian, minority, ethnic uh, attainment gap at the university level. Sorry, um, within education, say. Um, we see, we hear, especially during this crisis, the, the COVID um, pandemic, we hear that um, there's a disproportionate rep a disproportionate representation of fatalities or victims um, belongs to the BAME community. Um, we know, for instance, that BAME people are overrepresented in care. Um, and we know that they're overrepresented in, in uh, ex school exclusions, um, in just in all the deficit areas. So the question is, how can this possibly be solely an American problem? And in, in, in Robin's book, Policing Black Lives, she talks about this, uh, this similar reflection um, in the Canadian institutions, and uh, her research intersects with mine in the sense that I did my I did some research in Canada as well into um, into community organizations that support Black young people who are excluded from institutions uh, or institutional opportunities. And um, one of the things I, I I come across is that you know young Black people are people. They are doing the same things that all young people do. They want to get jobs. They, 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 they want to pursue an education, they, they're thinking about their future, but when they try to do this, um, because of the, the misrecognition within society, they, are, they, they have a harder struggle. Um, so they have a struggle, struggle finding part-time jobs, for instance. Um, um, their families have a hard time finding better housing. They have a hard time simply moving from one community to, to the other. So, you know, we're not just talking about crime and justice, and we're certainly not just talking about the the U.S. as a problem. And I think you do a really great job in your work of highlighting how some of the current challenges that you just mentioned are very much linked to history. And you have a really nice line in your forthcoming book that the present remains steadfastly tethered to the past. And I was wondering if you could say more about that and what, um, what, 
parts of history, what episodes in history you are trying to shine a spotlight on that is so affecting things now for young people? Yeah, um, it's so interesting. When I talked to my brother about this, he said, will you go back to slavery? And I said, well, we can't ignore slavery. But the thing is, we, you know, there's, there, there are multiple um, layers to, uh, to explore with this work. So we, we, we have to be, I have to be reasonable and I have to mark out a timeline. So my, my, my focus is with uh, the, um, the promise of early modern um, expansion of rights. So we're talking about the 20th century, um, where institutions were originated to, to support a, a sort of more humanist, a more egalitarian um, approach, or sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll change my vocabulary, I'll say a more democratizing approach um, to, to social life. Or, so institutions were inaugurated to support um, a, a progressive way that was based on notions of rationality and proportionality. So in that people were treated as people, and they were not simply treated, um, given a hierarchy um, of treatment based on who they were born to or uh, their class, their gender, et cetera, right? So we see um, at this point, I chose this point because it, it was the beginning of better things for everybody. So there was the promise um, of uh, expansion, of thinking, of treatment, um, where you know we were all invited into a social partnership. Yeah? And, and so what I, kind, oh, sorry. No, no, go on. I was just going to interrupt just very briefly. What kinds of institutions would be an example, like in this early, like early 20th century period? Well, um, institutions in general. Um, now, <laughs> that being said, I, 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 I must say, so we're talking about um, um, education. We saw no, um, frameworks like youth justice. Um, we saw a, a sort of um, health care, uh, social work. Um, now, if you talk to a Foucauldian or a Marxist, they, they would give you a, a, a sort of curt interpretation of what these meant. And this is, this is, this is partially my effort, because part, part of what I, I, um, I talk about in the book is that we have a modern promise, and um, we must never forget that the modern promise is problematic for everyone, that it was a promise that in principle and practice were quite distinct. So the promise was great, as ideal, and the, the practice was uh, not as ideal. But when you look at the experiences of racialized people amongst all this uh, non-ideal application of these promises, that they are always at the bottom. And, um, and uh, so, you know, my, my conversation around this is the notion that we, we have an idea that we, we have a, a system that is based on proportionality. But the reality is that the, the, the system is really based on interests. So, um, you know, the, it's not in the interests of society to, to support full racial equality, um, at least not, not wholly, not fully. Um, we, we, it's done in part, it's done in, in terms of tokenism, but it's not a democratizing process. It's, um, it, it's, a, it's a system that gives and takes as it, as it pleases. We see this also with gender. Um, so yes, I, I'll leave that there for now. Yeah, and so I, I guess what I hear you saying is kind of at that early 20th century time period in particular, that is when we did see a lot of what we're seeing is right, like kind of good for society things emerging, whether it was more widespread primary education, um, at least in places like Canada in the US or Canada and the UK by the mid 20th century healthcare. But within these, there was still, you know, there was still racialization, there was still discrimination in terms of gender and other elements, even in these things that otherwise had this more like kind of do good veneer to them. Is that somewhat yeah. accurate? 
Yeah, I said something along the in one of my chapters. I talk about the fact that uh, the well, the understanding that um that what racialized people experience was a, a an especially adverse circum or positioning amongst already adverse positionings, if if that makes sense. So you know that if juxtaposed to say the, the white working class youth um, who are also um, the focus or the target of these institutional uh, new norms that we're developing, um, especially around um, justice in general, uh, notions of which at the time, at the beginning uh, of, of the 20th century meant rehabilitation, care, socialization, education, et cetera, et cetera, um, in principle at least. Um, what we see is um, a system that, 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 that co-opted um, youth to support some sort of broader ideal and their experiences in these systems, youth in general, was quite adverse. You know, the, the, the literature bears this out. Um, but within that system of adversities, you have the experiences of racialized people who are, or young people, which were especially adverse. Um, and, and, and this is based on my, um, my research into the, the, into the archives and the narratives that were, um, that were that I uncovered in, say, for instance, the social research from, for instance, the settlements, these um, organizations that dealt with uh, with social issues in the UK. And and what were some of the stories that you found or unearthed in the archives? There's some interesting ones, Julie. Um, I let I let you in for the book for that one, um, but it's just it it it's it's a confirmation of for the narratives that we see today um, that we 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 attribute to um, to contemporary thinking, let me just say that they're quite historic. So, you know, for instance, the a population of racialized mixed race youth living in the port towns like Liverpool, you know, some of the conversations about these young people was that, you know, unlike the white working class youth, they were hopeless. Their families were um, beyond redemption. They were beyond redemption. Um, you know, and the the the, the, the conversations about what to do with them. Do we send them back? But send them back where? You know, they're born in Britain. Um, their parents were British subjects, though half of their parentage would have come from another part of the British um, Empire. Um, so these especially, these two narratives especially, the narrative about them being um, hopeless, so beyond redemption, um, and the other narrative about, um, you know, what to do with them. Do we find a way to repatriate them to some land outside of our own domain? And we see these conversations in Canada. We see these conversations also typically associated with the U.S., but certainly not just with the U.S. And you said a few minutes ago that youth were um, somewhat co-opted and also that to some degree, it was in some of these institutions or states' interests, so to speak, to maintain this um, this racialization and to have this kind of approach. Do you do you think that's still the case now, or has that changed? Well, there's a there's an an evolution in the way that narratives are are shaped, and always, you know, it. It's shaped by the, the context of the time, right? So um, in the beginning, young black people were not criminalized. They were seen, seen as pesky and uh, troublesome. And I think some of the research just, just described them as ticking time bombs. 
Um, but it's at, at, but as the the institutional approach to young people changed, so we moved from a, a system that was based in 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 principle on notions of rehabilitation and treatment, a, a system that in principle, and I keep saying that because I make the distinction between principle and practice, um, in principle, um, were, were um, rejected punishment. They, you know, um, they, they thought that punishment was, used, was, was without purpose when it came to dealing with the young because they accepted that young people were um, inquisitive and got up to no good. Uh, so the aim was to re-educate or to educate, um, to ins in instill good moral education because we're, what, the young people with whom um, these institutions dealt were usually working class young people who were classified as being broken or from broken families. Um, at a certain point in, in, in the history, there was a transformation in, in the way that institutions approached their, their, um, their interaction with young people. And this moved from an ethos based around rehabilitation and treatment to an ethos that incorporated punishment as an instrument. And it was, it was premised on this notion of punishment um, uh, being balanced with rights as a sort of teaching moment, as a, as a sort of um, um, using pu punishment being used as an instrument of um, teaching responsibility, the sort of moral responsibility that treatment had taken care of. So, you know, now I say I make the distinction between principle and practice, and this is where we see the the the, the differentiation. You know, once you once you introduce something uh, and you start to practice it, it really depends on who's practicing and who is being recognized by this practice. And I'm not I'm not sure if that if, if that answers your question. Yeah, and I I'll just I'll just ask too. I mean you within kind of these larger institutions and your know, kind of just general um, principle or discourse, you're focusing specifically on youth justice in this modern time, but I would say also up to today, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. So yeah. I guess why, like, why, why focus on youth and why focus on justice in particular now? And how do you see that principle practice playing out um, more kind of present day? Well, let's start with the part about justice. Justice is everything. We all want justice. Justice is about the good life. It's, it's about our invitation to participate as partners, as citizens. Um, it's about, you know, what, what the social contract is about, isn't it? Um, and my area of interest is, you know, I've, it's, it's always just been young people. Um, I have an interest in general for all well, the, the well-being of all people, but I've, it's, it's always been my, a focus, a, a passion of mine. Um, I suppose because I've also had some, some form of engagement with teaching since I was quite young. So I've always been in a sort of classroom setting um, since I was a teenager. So I've always had an interest in, in this sort of demographic. Um, not sure if that answers your question, so, but you know, I, I, I do think that we all strive for this thing called justice, that, that what makes our lives the best lives that they can be has to do with the level of justice to which we have access. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I guess right now I would, you know, what, how do you see some of those issues of principle and practice from the past informing youth justice today? Um, principles for the past. Well, the 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 
the outsider role, right? So the this this idea of being on the outside, being inside but on the margins. Um, in terms of young people who negotiate those institutional frameworks, um, being always on the margins, being invited in, but then not being supported according to the principle that's in place. The principle says, you know, young people have rights, they can defend themselves, that they will always be given the opportunity um, to to show that they can take responsibility, but also there's an obligation to them because of their 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 maturity or immaturity. Um, but that's never really filtered down for the most marginalized. And it just so happens that the most marginalized, that those those demographics are populated often always by racialized people. Um, so the the history of exclusion, the history of being of being um, partially supported, of being invited to take part um, in the broader contribution, but never really being supported in terms of the access to resources. So you know, part of my research shows me that, it, it, and, and this shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone that that you know over and over again as the mother country britain the uk or england would invite people from different parts of the commonwealth to come and help us come and share in the bounty and sh- and certainly people arrived and people you know did their due diligence but then the the, the question is having 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 arrived and having supported whatever call for help or labor was necessary um, the, the question is, how is it possible that so many of these next generation have ended up on the margins? And it, as it transpires, it's not just this generation. It's the people who arrived initially who were helping to do the thing they were invited to do. They were not supported, but they were their, their efforts were co-opted. You know, they were invited to do labor stuff and they did their labor stuff. But even as they were doing it, <laughs> they were being treated like they were outsiders. And and so all of this this sort of normalization of mistreatment has simply perpetuated. It's never gone away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, you mentioned the word exclusion um, several times there, and I think that's so interesting. Up against another thing you've mentioned to me in the past that I wanted to ask you about, and that's the issue of surveillance. So uh, on the one hand, exclusion from spaces, but at the same time, kind of a um, a hyper focus on certain groups and you know, the sense that if you follow anyone long enough, you'll see deviance, I think is something that, that you've said before. So can you say more about that issue of surveillance and how that has maybe emerged or even grown since that initial period in a way that has a big impact on youth and on justice? Yeah, I mean, I, I once presented a paper and it was called... Um, rebranding surveillance as social justice. And I use a particular case study to, um, to, 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 to support my, my thesis. Um, I theorize a lot um, on these things. And um, the case study I used was the example of school policing. And, um, I, I, and this is part of what my research takes me back to every time, that this, the in particular, I was looking at school policing in Toronto, Canada. And overwhelmingly, in Toronto, the schools that were policed were the schools in the inner city. And the populations in the inner city were overwhelmingly ethnic minority 
most predominantly blacks. Um, and the rationale for school policing was that, you know, they, the police were there to support a, a sort of social, social justice capacity. I don't quite remember the vocabulary that I use, but, but the aim was to, um, the, in, in, in writing or in principle, the, the rationale for the presence of the police um, was obviously in, in response to this sort of growth of the gang narrative and actual some real life incidents of, um, of drive-by shootings, um, some real, real life in, incidents of, of kids getting hurt in school. Um, and the police were brought in, but there was a rejection of the of uh, the, the 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 question, you know, why are you wearing a uniform if you're there to build um, to support young people? Why are you wearing a uniform and why do you have your gun on? Um, so surveillance has has taken on a new identity. Surveillance is said to be in protection of the people being being looked upon. If that makes sense. But when I talk to my students, I I usually draw a distinction between the kind of look that you get if you're in an inner city community versus the kind of gaze that you get if you live in an upper class community. So I juxtapose, for instance, surveillance of the inner city to the patrol or the protection of um, suburban neighborhoods where you have in, in the suburbs, you might have a, a police patrol or a security patrol that drives through every hour and then they they never stop kids in the street and strip them down and have them uh, spread, lay spread eagle in a car or on the pavement. They never ask the kids in those communities um, if, they, if their parents have a criminal record. They never humiliate the kids in front of their friends. Um, but in the, in the other communities, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the, the inner suburbs, in what they call the ghetto, which is a term I really, really hate, this is what this is a practice. And one of my participants who's a police officer says, yeah, sometimes we'll stop kids. Some kids get stopped four or five times a week. And they're always asked the same questions. Do you have a criminal record? Does your does any anybody in your family have they ever gone to jail? Take off your coat, take off your shoes, lie on the pavement. This is the difference between the kind of gaze that one gets when one lives or occupies a certain positioning within society. Um, so yeah, sure. The framework is there to protect, but the way it plays out in practice, that's a different story. And I, I think in your book, you make some recommendations for how some of these realities might be improved, addressed. What do you think about situations like this? Is there a way to move past this dichotomy and kind of find, um, you know, is there, it's, how do we get past this contradiction of like, of the protection on the one hand, but the disciplinary surveillance kind of element on the other? And what does that mean for youth justice more broadly? Um, this wasn't necessarily my book. This is just, a, I think, a, a conversation I, you and I might have had. We were talking about, because my, my, my primary um, interview participants are um, youth centers, um, community organizations that work in the inner city with young people and, and their families. So essentially they provide a sort of a support or framework for that, that is absent, that to which these families have very little access. So one of the things I noted when I was going to, to particular communities is this notion of a community center. And that's, that's great. You know, it, it, the community center as a framework provides um, 
specific kinds of resources to young people and they've come to rely upon it. But this this community center framework is almost a framework that, that, that works in conjunction with the thinking of crime and justice as being the primary problem. Right, sorry, crime and punishment has been the primary problem. But, 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 but my question is that, what's the point of building another community center in a, in a neighborhood that is totally like an economic desert? That where there, there, there is no infrastructure for development, there is no um, opportunities for, so the unemployment levels are low, um, people have very few, few, few opportunities to find work um, outside of their communities and definitely not within the communities. So my, my impression when I went into some of these communities was, you know, what's the point of building a, a youth center when, when the young people step out the door, they're stepping into this sort of hellish reality. The point is that it's not just about crime and punishment. It's about exclusion from resources. So it seems to me that if we can gentrify communities, you know, and all of a sudden make Brixton and Peckham super shiny and glossy, it's, and it seems to me that we can make communities better off to sustain themselves without the logic of gentrification, without the exclusionary logic of gentrification. So instead of just building a youth club, which is prone to the caprices of political office, you know, someone can come into office and cut funding and then the, the club is gone. Why not simply support development at the community level so young people can, and their families and their friends who are coming in and out can build a capacity to sustain themselves and be connected to the, to the wider uh, country, society, world, city, however you look at it, um, instead of just being the sort of like barren wastelands that are on the margins that people can go to, but you know, certainly they can walk away from and never need to go to. Um, and this is what sustains a sort of decay. So, this, the, so approaching this from a policing perspective or crime and punishment perspective is very singular and it's, 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 it's not expansive enough to, um, to, to, to sustain or support the capacity that is supposedly being supported. Is there anywhere where you observe that more holistic approach or saw at least steps being taken in that direction? <laughs> I talked about this with you and I said I was, I was like glorifying Scotland, but I can't really talk about that very much right now because I'm not prepared to. But uh, there are some there, there are some contexts where, I, you know, I, I'm familiar with, with Northern Ireland, for instance, as well. You and I both are. And um, where, where, where there's political will, there's, there's a way. Um, and I think the absence of a will in England in particular, just as a, as a jurisdiction in, um, in the UK, as one of the four jurisdictions in, in the UK, there, the, England seems to have the least political will to build capacity at the community level. And I will leave it at that for now. Um, <laughs> for, perhaps when the book is wrapped up, I can speak more proficiently about it, but yeah. Um, I'll, I'll just ask you, is there anything on which your thinking has changed since you started doing research on this topic, something that maybe you believed when you first started that that you think differently about now? God, a lot of things have changed in my thinking. I was so naive. I still am. Um, I don't know. This is something that I would have to reflect on. Um, I do think that that there's room for change, and there's um, there there's there's a possibility of of change, but I'm 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 at, I'm at once optimistic and uh, extremely I'm in a moment of insecurity. Um, but I do feel, especially looking on on what's happening um, 
with 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 the protest. I'm actually I was really quite surprised by the level of um of voices like the in the streets. Uh, the level of the voices in the streets um, and the the sort of, you know, the, the insistence um, of these voices and the persistence. Because, you know, initially when the, when the protest started, the chaos, um, it, it almost led to the impression that this, this, this was going to fizzle out because it was going to be contained because it was up, the, clearly the protesters were up to no good. But I'm, I'm, I'm looking with interest at the fact that the, this furor, this, this sort of chaotic element has settled and that what you see, actually, the bad guys are the institutional actors who are just don't seem to get it. That you can't, you can't respond to protests against police brutality by being brutal. It doesn't. It just confirms what the protesters are out there for. So in this sense, I, I'm trying to overcome this 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 feeling of uh, it's insecurity. Um, there's, I'm sure there are better terms for it. I can't think of one right now, but if you know what I mean. So if there was ever a thing I thought might happen um, that is happening or it's this, I'm looking with interest. Ask me again in another month. We'll see. <laughs> I, I will do that. Um, on that note, then, Esmeri, I might just ask you the question that I usually end the podcast with, and that is, are there any book recommendations or other writings? I know you do a lot with poetry as well. Any resources that you would recommend to listeners? Yes. So I've been reading two people who I really, really, um, I think are very interesting reads. Um, one's a Canadian activist called Robin Maynard. And her piece of work is called Policing Black Lives, State Violence in Canada from Slavery to Present. Um, there is also my new discovery. Uh, let's see. Her name is Eve Ewing. And Eve Ewing is a sociologist um, in, the, in the U.S. She's quite young and she's written three books. One of them is called Ghosts in the Schoolyard, Racism and School Closings in Chicago South Side, on Chicago's South Side. And she's also a poet, actually. And um, so... The thing that interests me about Eve is that she's 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 also looking into institutions and um, she's looking into how institutions inform or either undermine or potentially you know support can can potentially support agency, but you know for the black community, especially for her particular demographic that she's researching, how institutions like educational institutions, which are so important to modern society, are 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 being erased from this landscape which means that a key opportunity has been removed from the grasp of the people who live within these communities so they'd have to go far 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 out to, in order to access these um these resources that are supposed to be available to tax-paying people you know so um yeah so eve ewing and robin maynard awesome that I'll, I'll link to those in the notes too and if listeners are interested in finding out more about your forthcoming book, is there a way that they can get more information or follow you? Um, for now, I would say everything is mum. My book is being submitted at the end of the year, um, but it's, you know, it's, it's basically wrapped. So follow me on Twitter, um, at Esmeri M. Um, and yeah, you'll be updated there. Amazing. Esmeri, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks so much for the great conversation as always. 
Thanks for having me, Julie. You're lovely. Okay. <laughs> All right. Talk soon. Bye. Thank you once again to Dr. Esmarie Miller. You've been listening to The Julie Norman Show. If you like the episode, please subscribe, tell your friends about the show, give us a rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Stay well, everyone, and please join us next time.